Good morning. I don't even need to preach. You just sing that song over and over again. You got, you got the sermon. Thank you, worship team. Uh, my name is Anthony Hiron. I am a longtime attender here at New Community. I think um, 17 years that uh, my wife and I have been coming. I'm married to Liz. Uh, many of you probably know her better than I. Uh, she's uh, awesome, and she might be watching. I don't know. She might also be walking our dog. We got a pandemic dog uh, who has separation anxiety, so uh, she is at home uh, with our dog, so thank you. Uh, and also have my uh, two sons, Benjamin and Daniel, who are upstairs in Kid City, and my daughter, Maya, who wanted to take the dog to the dog park uh, and chose that instead of coming to church. So, <laughs> a couple months ago, uh, so I preached last year at some point, um, and then a couple months ago, on the advice of my therapist, uh, who was trying to get me to do things that give me life, told me to email Emily and, and ask to preach again. And I did that, and thankfully I was invited back uh, to preach, and boy, be careful what you wish for. Uh, because this passage, so Emily said, hey, we're doing this in the wilderness, you know, and Emily preached uh, up last week about uh, Hagar in the wilderness and God's care and promise to her. Uh, you know, she laid her child down to, so she didn't have to watch him die and God showed up for them. And so Emily emailed me, say, oh, we're doing this into the wilderness. And I was immediately like, oh, 1 Kings 19, great passage, love that passage. I've preached on it before. And an hour later, God was like, ha. Here's what you need to work on. <laughs> and so um, this is a deeply personal, maybe the most personal sermon I've ever given um, and some things that I have uh, dealt with in my life. So I covet your care and prayer as I dive into this. Um, oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So 1 Kings 19, uh, this is a story about Elijah. In order to understand what's happening in this passage, we have to know what came before it. So uh, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah shows up. Elijah is one of the real giants of the Old Testament. Just incredible ministry. Uh, you know, we talked, to the, we talked about transfiguration. I appreciated that announcement because I don't have to explain it uh, anymore. Uh, and when, when Jesus is transfigured, two people show up to talk to him. It's Moses and it's Elijah. So he's a big deal. Uh, and he shows up, and his first thing in his ministry is he says to uh, Ahab. So Ahab is king of Israel. If you've, if you've ever read the book of Kings, it follows this pattern of so-and-so became king over Israel or over Judah. There's two kingdoms. They're divided. Judah is in the south. Uh, the line of David continues over there, and Judah kind of has kind of a mixed bag. You know, sometimes it'll say the king did uh, what is right in the eyes of the Lord, or the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel has a 100% perfect, unblemished record of terrible kings. Every single one of them did evil. Every one. But there's one king that they single out as this guy was the worst. And that's Ahab. Ahab and his wife Jezebel, we're going to talk about her. Um, and so Elijah shows up as Ahab is king, and Elijah, his first thing he does, he sa says, the word of the Lord comes upon him, and he says, no rain will fall except by my word. Now, if you know anything about climate, 
the land of Israel is already a pretty dry, arid place. No rain is a big deal there. No rain falls except by Elijah's word for three years. That is a serious drought. So the king is not a big fan of Elijah. And Elijah decides, I'm going to go and meet the king. And this happens in 1 Kings 18. And he goes to meet the king. And he tells the king, bring all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. So Baal is the, one of the major deities uh, in the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, he is a storm god. Lots of people worship him. Lots of people follow him. And Asherah is a, a mother goddess. And says, gather the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah. You come and you bring the nation with you. And come to Mount Carmel. So he comes to the mountaintop. You've got the 850 prophets violently opposed to Elijah. You've got the king who would gladly kill Elijah. And you've got hundreds, we don't know how many, hundreds and thousands of the people of Israel who have turned away from God. And on the other side, you have Elijah. And I was trying to imagine this. I'm a a football fan. And so I'm trying to imagine like, you know, Soldier Field... And I'm facing the Bears, and now the Bears are terrible, but if it's just me, I think they're going to win. But it's not just 11, it's 850 of them. It's like the whole NFL, and they have swords, and the whole crowd hates me. That's what Elijah does, and he makes a deal with everyone. He says, here's what we're going to do. You prepare a sacrifice, I'm going to prepare a sacrifice. You call out to Baal. I'll call out to Yahweh, and we'll see which sacrifice is consumed, and then we'll know this is the real God. And the people are like, hey, that makes sense. Let's do that. And so uh, he says, well, there's so many of you. You go first. And so the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah start calling out, and they're dancing around. They start cutting themselves, and they have blood sacrifice. They're giving up their lifeblood, and they're calling out, and Elijah starts taunting them. And he says, oh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he went out. You got to be louder. And they go on and on and nothing. And Elijah says, okay, my turn. And he tells them to go get water and start soaking the sacrifice, pouring water over it. And then he prays to God and says, consume the sacrifice. The sacrifice is consumed in fire. And this is an incredible moment where the whole nation sees that Yahweh is real and Baal is false. And Elijah says, he seizes the moment. This is the tipping point, the turning point. He seizes the moment. He says, grab the prophets, put them to the sword. All 850 are executed. These 850 people that have willfully turned the nation away from Yahweh. And then he says to Ahab, go back to your palace, because there's a sound of rain coming, and you don't want to get stuck here. And so he hitches up his chariot to go and run, and chariots are fast, And the spirit of the Lord comes upon Elijah. Elijah hitches up his robe and runs in front of the chariot for about 20 miles. And this is an incredibly powerful symbolic uh, um, uh, scene. It's basically God's presence going before Ahab saying, this is now my king. The nation is choosing Yahweh, choosing God. 
And God's presence in the form of Elijah goes before the king to Jezreel. Then 1 Kings 19. Go ahead and put that up. Now Ahab, I'm sorry, I can't read that. Now Ahab and Jezebel, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Jezebel is the daughter of the priest king of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were a very powerful uh, merchant state. Uh, the Phoenicians, if you're familiar with them, they're, they're Phoenicians. The city of Carthage, that city-state, uh, would, would descend from them. And Jezebel is incredibly devout in her worship of Melkart, which is another name for Baal, and Asherah. But she doesn't just want Baal to be the principal deity of Israel, the northern kingdom. She wants to wipe out the worship of Yahweh. She wants to eliminate it. She leads a violent, violent oppression. She executes people. She executes the prophets. It says in 1 Kings 18, the the passage before this, these 450 prophets of Baal and 400 uh, prophets of Asherah, they eat at her table. She is their patron. And just like that, the whole thing collapses. Elijah's moment on the mountaintop, this moment of glory, collapses in the face of Jezebel who is at least the second most powerful person in this country, she may actually be more powerful than Ahab himself. At least religiously, she's the most powerful person in this nation. So I'm going to open this up so I don't have to keep staring back uh, at the screen here. Um, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face 
and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, Why are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mehaloah, sorry if I'm butchering the Hebrew there, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, to Baal, bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to put yourself in Elijah's shoes here. Well, sandals. He's on the literal mountaintop. The nation of Israel, which has never in its very history, from the first time when the nation split, the first king immediately began to move the the nation away from God. It's never turned back toward God. This happens, and he's this close. And to see it all collapse before him, to see the hope of all of the prophets before him that hoped for this and worked for this, to see it all collapse right there in a day. That's where Elijah's at. Imagine the feeling of fear, of failure. Of isolation. I mean, we see he goes into the wilderness. He doesn't make a real good plan. There's a drought going on. We have no indication that he prepared for that. He goes alone. He leaves his servant. He is physically isolated, emotionally isolated. He's alone and has the weight of an entire nation bent against him, wanting to kill him. Talk about whiplash from those two chapters. But thankfully, God shows up. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. God does not show up the way I want God to show up. I find that's often the case, <laughs> uh, that my, my desire for what I want God to do is often not in line with what uh, he intends to do. The first thing we see is God caring for Elijah's physical needs. He runs into the desert. We don't have any indication he packed a, a, a cooler, you know, <laughs> that he readied for the journey I mean, if you look at a map where he's at in Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai, it's a couple hundred miles. It's not close. And he goes into the wilderness. He comes to a broom bush and he sits down and says, I want to die. So maybe the lack of planning was part of the point. Because he's going into the woods to die. And he falls asleep. When he wakes up, there's food prepared for him. And then he sleeps again. 
And we don't see it, but I have every indication, at least in my reading of it, that God probably provided for him the whole way. We don't see that in Scripture. That's my interpretation of it. But God very much, I mean, the angel of the Lord says, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. God is deeply concerned with the physical need that Elijah has in this passage. I have a very, very real problem with self-criticism. I'm sure no one here can relate to that. And when I feel bad, when I feel like I've failed, I've done something wrong, my physical needs are some of the first things that go out the window. I stop eating well. I stop moving around. I'm restless. I stay up later and sleep worse. Our physical needs matter to God, and we are so quick to throw them aside as if they're unimportant. It's almost as if we're punishing ourselves. I don't deserve rest because I'm a failure. I don't have the energy to prepare a meal so I will eat junk because it's easier. I don't want to go out and do things that I know will give me life because I have nothing in me to do that. No energy, no motivation. And God's message to Elijah and to us here is, no, these needs matter. We cannot divorce our physical selves, our spiritual selves, our emotional selves. We can't, those are not separate spheres that don't touch. They are all intertwined. And so for God to care for Elijah, to get him where he's going, Elijah's got to live to get there. He's got to eat. He's got to rest. We have to eat and rest and care for ourselves. Not only when we earn it, but all the time. The next thing we see is God gives himself to Elijah. Now, there's a uh, literary technique that we often see in ancient uh, writings called a chiasm. If you know Greek at all, I don't, but the Greek letter chi is an X. And so how the structure works is you get uh, at each end of the X, and so like beginning end of the chapter kind of mirror themselves. And then you go further in and mirror to themselves and further in. And in the middle, whatever the center point of that X is, that chi, that is the most important part of the passage. So we see some repetition here, right? Like you see this, you know, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds, and we see that mirrored. We see Elijah traveling and, and getting commands, and we see that at the end. The center part, the most important part of this passage is the presence of God. Now, again, I'm going to tell on myself here a little bit. I like the wind, the whirlwind, the storm, the fire of God. I'm a very justice-minded person, and I want the armies of the Lord behind me. I want to lay waste to injustice. You know, Israel knows about these things. Heck, God just showed up in the fire at this sacrifice. He was just in the fire. So it's not like God doesn't do these things. The whirlwind and the fire, I mean, are potent imagery in Israel's history. When they went into the wilderness escaping bondage in Egypt, God led them by day with a pillar of wind and by night with a pillar of fire. These are images that God uses. But we see God is not in them here. 
God is in the whisper. Elijah knows it immediately. We see him, he covers his, his face with a cloak. There's a reason he does that. If we look throughout scripture, when an, usually when an angel of the Lord shows up, the response is terror. The, the one time that we see God actually show his presence to somebody is with Moses. Moses doesn't look at his face, but instead looks at his back, and his face glows afterwards to the point where Moses spends the rest of his life veiled because of the shining of his face. So the presence of God is a powerful thing. When the temple was in existence, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt once a year. They'd tie a rope on his ankle so if he died, they could pull him out. That's what the presence of God means. And so when we think of the presence of God, we tend to think, and I think the Israelites would tend to think, of the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire. But Elijah didn't need whirlwind, earthquake, fire. He just saw the fire, and now he's here. What he needed was a God who whispered. See, a whisper is intimate. It's personal. you got to lean in to hear it. Someone's got to get close to hear a whisper. What God, what Elijah needed in this moment was not the big, giant God, the Lord of hosts. He needed a personal God So he knew that even though he feels like a failure right now, God's presence is with him personally, individually. Again, when I feel like a failure, I feel like I don't deserve God's presence. I don't deserve God's love. I have to earn it. The gospel says that, right? We got to earn it. But... God's message to Elijah and to us is like the, the outcome does not determine his love for us. And in fact, the outcome is none of his business. God didn't send Elijah to be the prophet to Ahab and to Israel so that he would succeed. It was so that he would be faithful. And he was. He was faithful. He can't control the response of other people. He's not that powerful. I'm not that powerful. I, you know, if God tells me to do something, to you know, go and preach and do this, you know, I can't control what people, how people respond. I can't control what happens here today and whether God shows up. That's his business. His message to me, to us, is do what I have commanded you to do. Be faithful. And my presence goes with you. My presence is always with you. And Elijah needed to know that he was not separated from God in this moment. God wasn't distant because of what happened. God was with him, no matter what happens. The final thing we see in God showing up uh, is God gives him some things to do. He does not tell him, go back to Jezreel. I will rise up the 7,000 who are still faithful and you will lead them to the palace and we will overthrow Ahab and a new king who honors me will come up and the nation of Israel will turn. That's what I want. If I was Elijah, that's what I'd want. What he says is, okay, go to Haziel and anoint him. Go to Jehu, anoint him, and go find Elisha and he will go with you. Gives him a couple next steps. He doesn't promise him the mountaintop again. 
He doesn't give him, here's the whole arc of where this is going to go. Here's how I'm going to re- achieve victory. It doesn't, he doesn't even get a messianic prophecy here, right? It feels like that could fit here. He could get, I will bring the ultimate king who will bring not just Israel, but the whole world to himself, who will reign over all kings and all principalities, who will break every throne and every chain, and his name will be Emmanuel. He could have gotten that, but he doesn't. Elijah didn't need big picture. He didn't need, here are the hundred thousand things I'm going to do to bring the whole world under my authority. He needed next steps. This is what you do right now, Elijah. Boy, I want to know the end. I want to know every step along the way and how you're going to get me somewhere, God. God is giving next steps. Do this right now. Be faithful in this thing right now. I have been uh, working in the software industry for about the past four and a half years. And before that, I spent 10 years in ministry. And 10 years that was some of the most powerful years of my life and some of the most difficult. Um, And Eight years into that, so that's about six and a half years ago, I don't know, math, eight, nine years, something like that, um, my life basically fell apart. I lost any desire to do anything, any motivation. I was physically present with my family, but was completely unavailable. I was, I had nothing, I was empty. I was involved in this ministry and did nothing for about a year. Basically let every ball drop. Feeling constantly the weight of my failure. I slept poorly. I didn't do anything that gave me life because I didn't feel like I deserved it. I didn't take care of myself. The whole, it felt like everything fell apart. It's pretty much the worst year of my life. And this culminated in a performance review that was not a surprise. I mean, I knew things weren't going well. But basically hearing all the ways, all the things that I didn't do that I should have done, it was crushing just to see it laid out in front of me. And that was the moment that things turned for me. Uh, Number one, I got into therapy. I immediately, one session, my therapist was like, you have severe depression. Major depressive disorder was the term that he used. I went to my doctor, told them the truth, told them how I had basically prayed prayed this prayer that Elijah prayed of, you know, take my life, I'm a failure. And I got a prescription to help with some of the brain chemistry things that were going on for me. And I started doing the hard work of figuring out what was going on in my heart, in my brain, and in my life. And it was hard. I mean, hard work does not sort of do justice with the amount of effort and the the things I had to dig into, the trauma that I've experienced, the, the... weight of 
figuring out, like, what does it mean to live with a brain that works like mine does? And I, I entered into this process with, with my, my supervisor and my ministry, uh, basically a discernment process to figure out, you know, what's coming next? Do you, do you keep doing this, what you're doing right now? Do you move into some other role in the ministry? Or is there something, should you leave and do something else? And this was a couple months that we decided to kind of uh, enter into this process. And I, I, I dove in and I did what I was supposed to do. I, I prayed, I talked to God, I investigated other opportunities within my ministry and outside and like, you know, should I go back to school? Should I look at some other jobs? Are there other places within our ministry that might be a fit? You know, it's just crossing things off the list. And uh, I remember, you know, we, we hadn't met for about three, four months, and, and our meeting was coming up. And I remember I was, I was sitting with something. I don't even quite remember what I was doing. And, and it just kind of came to me that if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to stay and be in this ministry, I need to recommit myself to being under the authority of my supervisor. Now, we had had a bit of a contentious relationship. Uh, you know, obviously, I wasn't a great employee for a good chunk of that time. Um, but there were some difficult things that had happened, and it, and it just kind of dawned on me. And I think it was God showing me, like, if you're going to do this, you have to do it. You have to be fully, you have to choose to be under the authority and listen and respond and do the things he's telling you to do. Sometimes, maybe even when you don't agree. And that really felt for me like the turning point. Like this, yes, this is it. This is what I need to do. And I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to dive back into this ministry that I love. And a couple days before our meeting, he sent an agenda to me. And number one on the agenda was discuss how best to transition you out of the ministry. I can't adequately describe the feeling of reading that email and knowing I went through this discernment process. I dove into it. I gave everything I had in a way that I hadn't really done before. And the decision had been made without me. I was crushed. It's like the rug pulled out from under me. And I went into that meeting and poured my heart out and saying, like, this is all the stuff I've done. And I came here specifically to recommit myself to being under your authority and literally was told it's not enough. I went from feeling like this is the turning point in my life. This is where everything turns back towards God to being back in that wilderness. Thankfully, God showed up. And a couple months later, uh, my wife on Facebook actually saw a post that Emily put up. Emily used to work for a software company, and they were hiring. And God met my need, the physical need of me being able to support my family with this job. Prior to when I was still in ministry, I had you know, three kids or a family of five. I was on food stamps. I didn't make enough money. 
We had a problem with our roof. We own our house. We had a problem with our roof. We were broke. We had, if it wasn't for the intervention of my wife's parents, we couldn't have afforded to fix it. Our savings were gone. We had nothing. And I took this job, and my take-home pay more than doubled. Suddenly, I could provide in a way that I hadn't been able to ever. God met my physical need to support my family. God's presence showed up in powerful ways. See, I had some real bad theology of work. I thought that unless my calling and my work were 100% aligned, I was living outside of, of, of God's will. I was, I was failing. I wasn't doing the kingdom work God told me to do. Let me tell you that's not true, if any of you believe anything like that. That's not true. I like my job. I enjoy it. My company is great. I mean, this is a company that's not a Christian company, but everyone happens to be a Christian on the team. And so, like, my skills in ministry that most companies look at and say, this isn't transferable, they got it. They got how it transferred. Um, and I was able to do a job and just do it and, and, and be, oh, be good at it, but not need to feel like all of my my, my, my ministry, all of my, um, the goals that I have in my life have to be fulfilled in this one thing. It's okay to do a job to support your family. That's okay. Additionally, if you've ever worked in ministry or for a nonprofit, you know that there's always more to do and there's always pressure to give and to give and to give for the mission. And I always felt this pressure of if I wasn't working enough, I was failing the ministry. My very first week on the job, it's an hourly job. I kind of set my own schedule. And, you know, I was reading things and doing all the training and getting into our software and learning it. So by Friday, I, I had like two hours left in 40 hours. And we had in our employment agreement is uh, written approval for overtime. So I, you know, we're on Slack. I messaged my boss like, hey, I'm heading up on 40 hours here. I'm happy to keep working. But it said, you know, written approval for overtime. He's like, no, you're done. Go home. <laughs> You've worked enough. <laughs> I was so blown away, I immediately messaged my two teammates from my ministry job and said, my boss just told me I've worked enough. <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> He cared for me. He showed up in ways that I couldn't imagine. The third thing is he gave me the next step. I don't know what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I don't know if this job is a forever job. I don't know if, if I should go back into ministry or not. I don't know what's next. I do know that this was what I needed. I needed this step to do this job. Elijah never got back to the mountaintop. If you look at the story, Elijah's this giant of Scripture, right? Giant of Scripture. He's basically in four chapters. He shows up in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19. He's not mentioned again in the book of 1 Kings. And then he's in 2 Kings chapter 2 when he goes up to heaven. 
That's it. The, the, the tasks he's given here, he doesn't even get to anoint Jehu. Elijah never gets promised the mountaintop. He doesn't get promised to see the fulfillment of his ministry. He gets some promises about what will happen, but he's not involved. If you notice when he says, you know, Jehu will get those who escape Haziel, uh, and it wasn't Elijah will get those who escape Jehu. It was Elisha. But he got these next steps, and most importantly, he got Elisha. This man who thought he was the only one got a disciple, someone to walk with him. When I left my ministry, I was alone. One of the sad facts about working in ministry is it can be so all-encompassing that when you leave this community that you had, you're kind of disconnected. You're kind of unplugged from it. And so all these people that I shared my life with and shared hopes, dreams, pain, things like that. I think I talked to two of them, maybe three now, rarely. My best friend from high school lives in New York. You know, I see him a couple times a year. I had no one. And then God showed up and gave me some community within this church that I hadn't had ever. And there's a couple names I can mention, but I'm going to call out one person specifically, and that's Nate, Nate Noonan, who through Dungeons and Dragons, I think, was the way that we kind of started connecting <laughs> um, and just hanging out. And Nate has specifically told me that he feels that it's his call, one of his callings in our friendship to be the voice speaking truth to my internal critic that's telling me constantly how terrible I am and what a failure I am. And he, my wife and him both, call those lies out and tell me how that's not true. And now I have people that I can count on and rely on. You know, six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, if I had an emergency, I wouldn't know who to call. But a couple years ago, when out of nowhere I had a panic attack, 45 minutes of terror, I told my wife to call Nate. At 9 o'clock at night, Nate showed up and cared for me and my wife in that moment. And I'm eternally grateful for that. God often doesn't show up in the ways that we think we want, but he always shows up in the ways that we need. So is it Sarah was on keyboard? Was it Sarah? Yeah, you can come up. Um, my call to you is based on three things. First, what is it that you need? Do you need to rest? And to rest without guilt? Do you need to care for yourself? Do you need to do something that gives you life? Take a walk. Meet up with friends. And I know COVID's still a thing and I don't want you to do anything you're uncomfortable with. 
but what is it that's going to give you some life and some joy and take care of your physical needs? Do you need to ask someone to make a meal for you? Do you need to take a nap today? And, I mean, honestly, that is a spiritual thing to do. If you need a nap today, take it. That is a command from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Okay? (laughs) If you need to go and, you know, treat yourself to a meal today, do it. Care for yourself. My second thing is, how do you need God's presence in your life? Now, I grew up, you know, not, not in the church, but when I got into college, I got into college ministry, and the thing was always, pray more and do quiet times. Pray more and do quiet times. You know, you go to a retreat, and you come out and say, I'm going to wake up every morning at 6 a.m., and I'm going to do an hour of prayer and an hour of Bible study. And that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Again, we want the big thing. We want to do these big, awesome, impressive things. What I needed to do when I was at my lowest was work a job and untangle the, the-, the bad theology I had. So what do you need? Where do you need God's presence in your life? Maybe it is a little bit more scripture. Maybe it is a little bit more prayer. Maybe it is doing something that brings you joy and meeting with God in that. Maybe it's spending time in community and talking about some things. I don't know. I don't know where you need God's presence, but I know God's presence can be found everywhere. So whatever you do, you can do it with God's presence there. And the final thing is, what is the next step? And I was hedging on whether to say, oh, maybe one or two things. I'm not even going to say two. One thing. One thing. I want the path to the mountaintop. I want every step along the way. I want to know, I'm a big picture guy. I want to know the end goal and where, where I'm going in my whole life. I want to know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. God never promises us that. What is the one thing that you need right now. And it doesn't have to be some massive thing. Again, it could be a nap. It could be some time with a friend or a family member. It could be some time alone. I'm not an introvert. I know there are introverts out there. Take your time alone. Listen to music. Do some art. Go out, and you know, it's not that warm, but go outside. Go into nature. Go in the wilderness. I'm a city guy. Nature doesn't like me, but some of you, you know, love nature. Go out in nature. Take a walk. You can go to Garfield Park's conservatory. It's inside. Go there. Beautiful. I love it. What is the one thing you need to do today, this week, something that moves you out of the place of despair and feeling like a failure and feeling like you have let everyone and everything down to the place of God's presence. Pray with me. Jesus, we know you are Lord over everything. We know you are the God who brings Justice, who breaks chains, who cracks thrones, who lays, who lays waste the foundations of evil in this world. 
You are all those things. You are the God who holds the universe in your palm and sets the planets and stars in motion. And yet you are the God who sits next to us with a gentle whisper. You are the God who knows our hearts and our minds and our needs. You are the God who shows up all the time, every time. You are the God who knows right now what the one thing is that we need to do. The one thing we need to get a, we need to get a little bit more of you. Jesus, speak to our hearts, speak to our spirits, help us to take one step, not to focus on the thousand steps, not to focus on the end goal, but to focus on the one step we need today to get a little bit more of you, Lord. Help us to be in your presence. Help us to see you and hear you in the gentle whisper of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.